0: Welcome to Coming From Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. In most urban settings, we see blue tarps housing homeless encampments. Why are so many living on the streets? Is it the loss of affordable housing? Are people falling on hard times because of our harsh economy? The natural consequences of income inequity? But maybe chemistry is the culprit. Could it be so simple that a few new synthetic drugs are causing the crisis? Let's discuss. Well, warm greetings, everybody. We are excited to have Sam Quinones on our podcast today with Greg. And uh, Sam lives in L.A., but you are—you said you're in... in Uh, Tennessee right now so Nashville Tennessee right right and I I think most people know uh, know Sam from his absolutely wonderful book uh, Dreamland which I I won so many awards I won't mention them all but it was about the tale of the opiate addiction the kind of the history of the opiate uh, addiction and has won uh, like I said numerous awards and and that was uh, a few years ago, in your most recent book, which we want to talk about now, is the least of us: the true tale of America and hope in the time of fentanyl and myth uh, and math. And Sam, this book has just been a, a great, great book for me. And and Greg, we've had many conversations about it. It's not often that we converse back and forth about a topic, but. You did just a great you did a great job with this book and uh Thank you. i i really think you deserve a loud megaphone to talk about the content of it so tell us Thanks. a little bit about um well why don't you tell us your first book and second book because people
1: have to read both of them they're both just so wonderful um the the dreamland book was the first book on this topic again i've written two other books, both about Mexico, from my time in Mexico. And really, it was my time in Mexico that really sparked the Dreamland book, because I began um, in 2009 and 10 to write about Mexican heroin traffickers, and particularly this one town that I wrote about in Dreamland, where all the guys from this town come up to sell uh, heroin very much like pizza delivery, Uh, just black tar heroin, not pizza. And, uh, and as I was doing that, I was really engrossed in, in by that story. And, and, and uh, I began to question, well, why would they even have a, a greater amount of uh, uh, heroin market today? Because I thought the seventies were when, you know, heroin just was a big, big thing and then petered out because people saw it was such a disaster. And that led me then to a much larger story. See, I thought I was on this big story about these guys from they were in 20 states. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating, you know. And then I realized actually, the reason for their new market of heroin is because of a much larger story that I was oblivious to, because I had lived in Mexico when it was really all taken off. And I really didn't pay any attention to US politics or anything in the United States really for about 10 years and that was the whole opioid revolution in pain management where opioid prescription painkillers were you know to be prescribed for all manner of pain and in endless refills and on and on and on so that whole story kind of grabbed my mind by about 2010 11 and then 12 I got a contract to write a book about it and that, and then that led to a bunch of other ideas, too, that I had not considered. See, I thought this book, that book was going to be about pain, I mean, pain management and, and drug company strategies for selling opioids, on one hand, and, and this one town in Mexico where everyone sold heroin-like pizza up in the United States in about 20 different states. And that's certainly part of the story. But the other part became bigger and more interesting to me also. And that was that what we had done to destroy community, what we had, how we had shredded the bonds that kind of kept us alive and, and kept us surviving and so on. And in America in the last 40 years, we decided those bonds weren't really necessary, even though you know, millennia of, of human beings have known how very, very important they, they, they are. And to me, that became a bigger story than, than the one I was actually doing and then I that transferred over into, into the least of us and began to focus on stories of people trying to remake community in their area in, in very, very small ways, you know right. le- no, non-sexy ways, because I thought part of the problem with the opioid epidemic was that we wanted a magic answer to a very complicated problem. The complicated problem was human pain, all you know rooted in our central nervous system. How do we, how do we address human pain? Well, well, the answer was one magic answer, opioid painkiller pills for every single human being, and there's no risk of addiction, and la-di-da. And I thought that that was really what brought us into this whole problem, and that we needed to get away from these ideas of so searching for magical answers and ease silver bullet solutions to what ails us and get down into the nitty-gritty of daily work at community repair. That's where the answer lie, I believe.
0: You know, I, I have a feeling in reading your books that part of the excitement of the way you do journalism is you start with a topic but you, you don't always end where you think, you don't have an ending point. You, no. you go with the story, you yes. go with the flow, and and that's, and we we see you doing that in the process of your journalism, and that's really
1: pretty, that's pretty pretty good model, I think, you know. Well, that's a very astute observation, Pat, because that's exactly what happens, and always ha- have worked that way. I don't, try to hold on to the conception of what i'm doing that i had at the beginning as the facts begin to as i talk with people as i begin to see new things go to different parts of the country learn new things it's like an ocean current right you think you're headed over over here the ocean current will gradually just take you if you let it it will take you someplace else and that someplace else is can very often be more exciting, more interesting, more fascinating and more real than where you thought you were headed when you started. And and starting place you have a good idea where you're going, that's not a bad thing. The bad thing is when you say no. No matter what the facts are, I'm headed this way. No, you let the facts and people and that is the beauty, the joy, the great exhilaration of journalism right. is found in that process in that finding in that exploration that just that map of discovery that you don't know where you which which you don't know ahead of time and that is what's beautiful that's why i love the job that's why i've been doing this 35 years now and i really am never ever been bored
0: i i want to just have one little comment about dreamland and then get into the to your your most recent book but you had something (laughs) here i think my numbers are relatively right you were talking about all of these pill mills and. Pennsylvania and Ohio that were popping up and there'd be lines out the door and people would come in and uh, the the doctor, had spent three minutes per person that it would be, the person would have to have $250 cash, no insurance to get the doctor's bill. They'd get the prescription. The prescription would be take it to the pharmacy. It'd be a thousand dollars worth of pills, but Medicare, Medicaid would
1: pay.
0: They would only have to pay 3% of that.
1: Three dollars. Usually, it's a three dollar oh, copay. Three. Oh, I thought it was three. Yeah, it was a very, very small copay. Okay, that's sometimes better, five.
0: That's a better. So they pay three dollars, they get the thousand dollars worth of oxies, and it's worth ten thousand dollars on the street. Right. And then we wonder why this spread so effectively. It's the most efficient
1: market system. No.
0: Yeah. And the settlers knew about this, right?
1: Well, I, I'm sure they knew all about that. They knew all about a lot of things. Um, they, they also, the, I would say though that, that you when, when you get the, the places where those where that system was put most in place were areas that were already kind of bombed out economically. I would say coal fields of Kentucky, West Virginia. You saw this a lot. Uh, a lot of places where you saw. Um, like Portsmouth and, and uh, other towns in Southern Ohio where you saw a lot of factories had left. Um, it's those areas where you began to see uh, who, a lot of people were already on Medicaid and or, or sometimes were on SS, uh, SSI or SSDI, Social Security, Disability Insurance, Social Security Insurance, hadn't really worked or were, were disabled from the work they had up to the point where the pills arrived en masse, the most important thing about that was that they got a check every month. And then for some people, after the pills arrived, the check became inconsequential because it was 600 bucks a month for SSI, for example. And people really began to understand the most important part of that package was the Medicaid card, which allowed them to get get their prescription paid for so long as they could get a, a, a doctor to prescribe it almost anything that the guy doctor prescribed. And it wasn't just oxycodone. It would be, you know, um, uh, generic oxy- oxycodone, Oxycontin, Percocets, Vicodin. They could get um, Xanax bars. Uh, there was a whole bunch of things. And some people had stunning, stunning array of pills, you know, that would, that would be prescribed to them. And then they would go and get those, that prescription with a $3 copay at a pharmacy And, and then frequently, though, I have to say those folks were so strung out that the $10,000 worth of pills, they would use them sometimes the people who would drive them to their to their um, appointments were more like kind of it was like kind of a sharecropping agreement almost where you were, these folks were would be borrowing, they would use up all their pills, midway through the month and then they'd have to borrow pills from the guy who was going to drive them to their appointment. And then by the time they actually drove them to the appointment, the the, the prescription that this guy was going to get would pretty much be promised to the guy who was driving them. So there's a, there's a big ecosystem of illegal kind of underground ways of profiting off of that. But you're right. I mean, a big, there was, that was in some areas uh, the that was a, a major way in which the pills circulated through, uh, through the region. Right. So,
0: um, I I I went by my old place where I used to work in in downtown Tacoma in the school district today and and drove by I was actually going to a pharmacy to uh, get a prescription filled and next to it was just row after row after row of blue tents and and yeah. and homeless shelters and right I your book has a fairly simple Ackman's razor uh, observation about that, that maybe what's going on is a is chemistry as much as yeah. it is despair and inequity and all of these other things. There could be a couple of uh, new synthetic drugs in their availability that's that's sparking this, and it might not be that complicated to figure out. I, is, am I being a little simplistic here?
1: Well, I would say there's there's yeah so there's no I don't say not simplistic there's more to it a little bit but, but the idea is um, that it kind of kind of came on as I was writing the least of us is that. Um, uh, the methamphetamine be that was produced in Mexico has been produced in Mexico uh, substantially since the, the since the early 1990s. Uh, the method that they use for making it changed in 2009 and got ramped up after that. I will explain explain a bit. But the first method that they were using is the more common method. Very easy to turn it into methamphetamine. It's a chemical called ephedrine and a little, few t- tweaks. you turn it into methamphetamine and and, you know, if ephedrine is found in Sudafed pills, it's a decongestant. And uh, they were getting tons of it exported or imported into Mexico. And they were getting a portion of that in the underworld and they were transforming it into methamphetamine and they hadn't industrialized it. And, and they saw this as a major profit center. Uh, and then the Mexican government, um, flipped the gears a little bit and said, no, now we're, we're going to really, uh, 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 squelch and, and control the amount of a allow imported into Mexico. And with that, the trafficking world had to switch. And they looked around for another method of making methamphetamine and there is one it's been around for a long time the bikers the Hells angels used to use it. Um, And it's involves a chemical known as P2P phenol to propanone. now there's no real reason if if you're uh, making methamphetamine that you want to use P2P method it then rather than the ephedrine method it's very messy and a lot of chemicals it stinks et cetera, et cetera, you get. You really have to know more what you're doing than than with ephedrine. Um, But if you don't have ephedrine, that's what you have to do. So they began to gradually switch beginning in 2009. Now, the the method for making methamphetamine with P2P is actually has one profound benefit for traffickers, and that is that you can make P2P many, many, many different ways. Right. With uh, different chemicals each time those chemicals are largely chemicals you can find very easily. They're industrial chemicals. They're legal, widely available. They're toxic and you can make P2P with all these chemicals. And so if the government cracks down on this batch, this group of chemicals used to make P2P, you can switch to many, many other ways. And what that means is if you have control of the of the um, of the ports uh, on the Pacific coast, which the trafficking world does, you can import quantities of chemicals that allow you to make more methamphetamine than you have ever thought possible with ephedrine. And that's what begins to happen in 2009, but really begins to amp up, um, in 2012, 13, 14, right in that period, right? It just goes crazy. And they and you begin to see this methamphetamine marching across America. Now, the Federal the meth used to cover parts of the Western United States. You would never see it east of the Mississippi River, and it really didn't even cover all of the West. And in many other parts, you would find pl- people were making meth out of those, you know, Sudafed pills. And right, just, right. you're talking about grams or ounces, very small quantities, really. And so those guys go away. As soon as this meth begins to march across the country, each time it hits a region, you begin to see those those folks just dissolved the way mom and pop stores dissolve when Walmart hits, you know, it's just not even, there's no competition anymore. And this mess begins to march its way all across the country, beginning about 2012, 13, 14 on the West coast. Definitely you're seeing it there, Vegas, LA, Phoenix, whatever. And then it gets to the Midwest by 2017, 18, right in there. And then up into new England about 2019. And, um, and at the same time, they are able now to produce so much that not only do they cover the country, but they drop the price by like 80%. It's just incre- incredible, incredible uh, story of production capacity, which is what I thought the story was. I thought that was really the lone story. And then along the way, as I'm doing that story, I, I learned from a guy that I met in LA, um, that when he was he was using meth for a long time, now he's a homeless outreach coordinator. He's working with tent encampments. He, you know, just see if if he's a veteran, former marine, and 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 uh, he tells me, I was using meth for several years, and then in 2009, precisely, the meth changed, and I became a raging schizophrenic, paranoid, horribly paranoid, violently paranoid, very solo. You know, the ephedrine meth was a party truck, big in the gay community. Everyone wants to party. Everyone, you're yakking away with everybody or everybody's best friend, as this guy said. You know, when I was on that meth, I was everybody's best, best friend talking and talking and talking. And then in 2009, he said the meth changed. And it, I, I began stabbing the walls of my girlfriend's house, thinking I was... They, he, she had a man hidden in the wall. I mean, it was just crazy stuff. And I never felt that euphoria again. And on the contrary, it was like very, very sinister thoughts and nobody wanted to be around. I tell people what I'm thinking and everyone would just kind of like back away and that kind of thing. And I, that hit me that night when I heard that story from him, I say, or oh, she was two in 2009. He goes, absolutely. It was 2000. And, and that, after that I spent months, six, three to six months calling people all over the country because I reasoned if this methamphetamine was all over the country beginning in 2009, this new P2P meth, then maybe people, when they saw it arrive in whatever region they lived in, would see. These same symptoms, you know, paranoia, horrible hallucinations. Everybody's out to get you. You can't be around anybody, you know, um, just and grim and uh, that uh, uh, conspiracy theories, all this stuff. And sure enough, as I called people all over the country, people who had different backgrounds, cops, uh, 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 recovering addicts, people who were in, uh, uh, worked in rehab, all kinds of stuff, homeless outreach folks, psychiatric folks, all these kinds of things. Everybody had that same story. It was as if as this meth marched across the country, it was accompanied by rapid onset symptoms of schizophrenia, mental illness very quickly leading to homelessness and what that then meant was the meth also very quickly drove the people to to form up uh tent encampments tent encampments are a perfect place if you think that everybody's out to get you and yet you be the because of the insanity of addiction you cannot get away from this drug you don't want to be away from this drug this drug is something you absolutely need even though it drives you to torment but that's the insanity of addiction seems to me honestly and so you began to see these tent encampments form up, made up largely of people who were on, 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 on meth. Now, other drugs, of course, were part of the mix because we're really in a poly drug world, but it's that it's that the meth that really drives people to want to be in a tent, instead of a homeless shelter, For gonna say, you know, the last place you wanna be is a homeless shelter, right. right? And so all of this kind of became, it it all began to connect the dots and make, a, a, a huge amount of sense that all across the country, not just on the West Coast and not just in very very you know high priced cities, but in rural areas and in Rust Belt towns, you began to see the the Rust Belt phenomenon along with the the arrival of that very sinister right. meth.
0: Right, and I, I I was listening to a podcast actually this morning. I was I was walking that you did with a physician was emergency room physician. I forget who she was. Very good yeah. podcast. And she was talking about how this new meth has the ability to sort of, uh, uh, this is simple terms, create schizophrenia yes. in a short period of time, including what we typically think of word salad, which is just, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's part of it, jumbled and poor thinking, uh, a uh, agitated delirium. Uh, you had talked about your your experience of the emergency rooms are literally yeah. changing because these people are so far so out of their mind, and that when you're looking at I want to help you, you've reached rock bottom. I'm going to give you treatment. You might as you're not talking to somebody that has any capability of responding to that. No. And, and and the damage can occur where it would take several years before. Correct. I, 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 that's just, it's a zombie. It's a, it's a Stephen King uh,
1: uh, novel. That, that, is, that is correct. I hate to put it that way, but I think you're, you're right about that, that. There's this very, very ominous um, uh, part of the story that, that, that um, was difficult for me to hear. On the other hand, it was very hard to not then write it. You have to write that stuff. It's part of the, the job, you know. But it, yes, exactly. People very quickly fall into schizophrenia. It's very difficult for people in ERs to tell the difference, by the way. I've heard this many, many times from different parts of the country. Um, you can't tell if they're organically, so to speak, mentally ill or meth-induced mentally ill. Um, and, um, and you also uh, saw the transformation, yes, of ERs, uh, places where they became, people became uh, completely unruly, incapable and violent and, and, and you didn't couldn't have them around um, anymore. What's also true, I think, is that this methamphetamine, uh, along with fentanyl, I have to say, seems to do just a magnificent job of squelching our basic instincts for survival, Mm -hmm. self-preservation. So yes, you find people in these tent encampments in the middle of winter will not leave the tent camp. I know what things are like in, uh, in 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 northern washington but uh um i've been in other places where you know it gets down to freezing snow and so on people will not leave they freeze to death i've had examples of people freezing to death in these things rather than leave the tent encampments it's just an amazing even with warming shelters even with whatever places they could go it's it's that the dope has completely controlled that basic instinct for survival now all drugs of abuse do that that's why you s- used to see heroin addicts living under the overpass and, and people stealing from their grandmothers who, who, would, uh, who had read to them when they were five. I mean, it just reverts totally to a complete domination of the dope to find and use drugs at no matter the cost. But these drugs, perhaps because of just, just staggering supply, utter pr- availability everywhere, just cheap, almost free. Um, that the, these drugs seem to do that to a degree that m- maybe we haven't even seen yet. And you see that, I believe that's what tent encampments are. They're just simply display cases for the massive ability of drugs of abuse to squelch our basic instincts for survival. Right.
2: Look, I was, I was if you can hear me, uh, Sam, I was struck last Wednesday with the headline, overdose deaths hit record last year. And it, th- there's been over a million... Overdose deaths since 2010. It struck me as an incredible figure, and yet the public outrage is not there. Right. The 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 policy outrage is not there. Yes. Um, and, and clearly from this this CDC story, it's accelerating. I mean, since 2010, most of this is packed into the back end. I mean, it's really accelerating up 33 uh, percent. The biggest growth is in meth, actually, 33% according to that CDC, but uh, fentanyl's right behind it. Mm-hmm. Why is there no policy? Why are people not engaged with this? I mean, you know,
1: it's a great question, uh, Greg. I would say um, part of the, the answer has to do with the drugs itself. It's kind of like this drip, drip, drip of bad news for 12 years, right? That's part of it. That that over time you can kind of get uh, narcotized. Frankly, it seems to me. I mean, people just go, okay, more, more, okay. Um, I I think for a long time too, nobody paid attention to it because nobody thought it affected them. Now what you're seeing is that more and more people all across the country um, have somebody that they know who's died or an overdosed or is involved in a add- is an addict on the street or something like that. Now that is. Um, that was probably a, a more common than, than people knew, but what's happened is in the last seven years, I would say we've seen a real increase in the amount of awareness of this. And so people are aware of it. On the top of it, on top of that, you have fentanyl now, now uh, uh, everywhere in the country. And of course, people overdosing on fentanyl far, far more often, far more easily. I would also say that it has to do with the attitudes we have towards addicts, right? It's a, well, this guy uh, brought it on himself. There's something to that, and on the other hand, there's a lot of there's a lot more to it than just that. Um, this guy, you know, all these 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 junkies, uh, that kind of thing. There's this attitude that you know I, I don't want to be around that. These people are doing it to themselves. They need to they need to man up. They need to step up. And um, again, there's some things to that. On the other hand, there's a whole lot more to it than just that. And so my feeling is that that a lot of the, the, the policy has not immediately fallen, f- followed the, the numbers because there's this feeling like, oh, this keeps on going on and uh, these folks need to stop using dope and then, then everything will be fine. You know, there's, there's a lot of that. Um, it, there's, it's just a kind of a combination of things, I think, that creates a kind of a narcotized uh, reaction to, to these numbers.
2: Well, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's surprising because uh, the world, the, the quote, unquote, war on drugs was multi, multi, multi-billion dollar uh, uh, effort. And it was very punitive. But uh, then this is coming. And I, I noticed in your book, and it was striking is how much of the stories, the accounts that you gave so vividly, were in the Rust Belt, where, where industry had left and where people were devastated. So from the Uh, demand perspective. The demand, I guess, grew dramatically in those areas. And one would think since much of that was white people and the war on drugs was largely launched against black people, there would be more policy interest in fixing it. But there doesn't seem to be that. Well, I would say this though. Um, I can tell you when I
1: was writing Dreamland, uh, there was no understanding of this story in most of the country, outside of Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky, and maybe parts of Tennessee, like nobody wanted to know about it. Nobody knew about it. Nobody cared. Nobody talked about it, etc. All kinds of ideas that were now being considered are were not even on the table. I saw this with my own two eyes. With my, I lived it. When I was writing Dreamland, that was the story. When I was out there, it was like impossible to get families to talk to you about this stuff because they were ashamed and mortified and didn't. And also, they thought they were the only ones. Only one mm-hmm. in 10-mile radius is me. This is the only family dealing with this. As the, when the Dreamland book came out, one of the things that, again, I lived and my family lived was to watch as people just came out slowly out of the shadows into the light. It was a remarkable thing to behold and I watched it happen. It affected me dramatically because people began to ask me to come speak. I never imagined in a minute ever that that during writing Dreamline that anyone would ever want me to come speak to them because nobody cared about this topic, I thought, because I couldn't find anybody who did, who wasn't professionally involved anyway. And all this, so I began to see these people come out, you know, uh, 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 invite me to come speak, I began to feel this energy behind that. And more and more places I went, the more I felt it, and and it began to grow over the next several years. And so I would say that you're right, that there's a lot that is not being done. I would also say this, we have come enormous distances since I turned that book in, my manuscript in, in 2014. I swear, it's been a remarkable change, really. Now, a lot more needs to happen, a lot more resources, a lot more local community galvanizing, in my opinion, needs to happen. But um, I can also say, having lived it, that, that it's very different than, when, than nine years ago or eight years ago when I, turned that, when I turned that book in in the fall of 2014.
0: It reminds me a little bit of the AIDS crisis, you know, when yes. people were ashamed of having somebody that died of AIDS and, you know, that they had leukemia or whatever. And then at a certain point in time- it, Yes, it, and then at
1: a certain point in time, you have Magic Johnson, you have right. um, more and more people knowing people, you know what I mean? And, and there's more stories being told. None of this happens without stories being told. Magic Johnson didn't hide it. He held, his, he, he held a public conf- a pr- press conference, told his story, and we followed Magic's story well up to until today, right? right? It, it was a remarkable uh, story, that guy's story, I, honestly.
0: Yeah, and, you know, you've got Prince, uh, Taylor Hawkins, one of my heroes, a drummer for the, the Food Fighters, Tom Petty, we're we're now into your fentanyl issue, that these are all yes. people that are having um, uh, involuntary uh, deaths related to that. And let, before we get into the fentanyl issue, I'd like to just bring up two things. Um, yeah. One is I went to a a baseball game, a minor league baseball game the other day, and next to me was a a paramedic. And I said, you know, how are you uh, dealing with uh, drug issues? And he just looked at me and shook his head. And he said, tomorrow when I go to work, we'll pick up three bodies, all from the little Percocet uh, blue pills, which is a fentanyl pill. And he said, where it used to be, where it used to be just in kind of rough parts of town, it's now in Renton. It's now in Lakewood. It's now, it's everywhere. Yeah. And in today's paper, we have this little headline here Police investigate sale of vape cartridges at Woodenville High School that contain fentanyl. Right. And you know, the,
1: you've got that issue. So,
0: and but they, I think,
1: I think all of that, Pat, has to do with simply the question of supply. Uh, they are able to make supplies everything. in Mexico given right. the access to world chemical markets, again, getting back to that, getting ac- access to world, chem- they're they are able to make quantities of this stuff that simply boggle uh, the mind. And they are now are, are looking, they and, and lower level street dealers are, are, are all, that has changed the entire drugs panorama. It used to be if you're a street dealer, your biggest question was, where do I find the dope I'm gonna sell? Because your connection will get arrested, or all kinds of things would happen. You'd lose your connection. You'd have to constantly, every three or four times a year, find a new connection, probably. Well, now that's that's not a problem. The, where you find your dope is not a problem. Now the question is: in what form do I sell it and through and where? And so now what you're seeing is people have figured out down in Mexico primarily that if you package it into um look-alike counterfeit, name the pill. Percocet, Percocets, uh, Percocets Adderall's, uh, uh, Xanax bars, whatever. Um, and you, that's where that's now a new delivery mechanism for for fentanyl. That means that every pill that's on the street that you don't get from a pharmaceutical bottle given to you by a pharmacist is suspect. And you can bet you can bet a very good amount of money. They'll likely have fentanyl. Um, the other is uh, you know marijuana now and vapes that's another place and uh, all of this see makes business sense because you might kill a few folks but what you will do in the long run if you're a dealer is you will create brand new customers see the customer goes from buying marijuana every few days or cocaine the big one I was always for a long time now it's been several years now been cocaine you're going from a cocaine user usually buys, maybe once a week, maybe a couple of times a week, takes a vacation from the dope every once in a while. Well, you mix fentanyl into that and that person uses a few times and survives. And pretty soon that person is a fentanyl addict, not a Coke user. You know, it's a very different thing. And, and it means more to the dealer because that dealer now is is selling to that guy three, four, you know, every day, certainly. And maybe even more than once once a day whereas before that person was buying once a week and so this is all you know people have figured this out and understand the business the business advantages to selling fentanyl you get customers who are far more faithful and by the time you've addicted a lot of people in your region a lot of people are wandering around now addicted to fentanyl that they've survived somehow um it, it, you know, it, by that point, everybody needs fentanyl. Now you can't, you can't sell stuff that doesn't have fentanyl in it anymore because no one will buy it because now they're, they're addicted to fentanyl. They're, heroin is, is, is obsolete. It's, it's, it's fading away. And I think within a couple of years, we won't see like literally an amazing ideas. We still literally in two years may not see any heroin on the streets of America at all, because it will not get rid of the dope sickness. If you are addicted to fentanyl, fentanyl is, just too powerful but it's again it's it's like people are really afraid of the withdrawals of fentanyl um methadone can be a good substitute i know people who have substituted off of it and it may be like the one thing that people actually turn to that really helps them i've seen it turn lives around of course it's an opioid so you're going to always have to be you're addicted to methadone you're always going to have to have methadone nearby but i would say that that it's it's a possibility i'm just saying that that um on the on the street, the, the the incentives for selling putting fentanyl into almost anything, given how cheap and easy it is to do, are, are just huge. Hmm. You know, I
0: before before you came on, Greg and I chatted, and we said, you know, we'd like to get your opinion about what we do about some of this stuff. You know, you've really uh-huh. laid the you yeah. laid the groundwork for what's happened. Uh, but I I'm looking here. Um, I have a lot of people in law enforcement in my family, and my my sisters uh, sent me this thing uh, from a year ago today in Washington State. The uh, they made possession of drugs from a felony to a misdemeanor, and so the and they're essentially not yeah arresting people for misdemeanors yeah and and our um, our governor said before signing the bill, Inslee said the measure will help reduce the disparate impact of the previous drug possession statutes on people of color. Defining it as we're trying to help
1: not arrest people of color on misdemeanors. Yeah. Mis- and the problem with that is, it seems to me, that it misunderstands the, the, the drug situation on the street as, right. as it was, right. in fact, as the reality was when that law was signed. Uh, I mean, um, and, and that's the problem with, with decriminalization, when, when, you, when you allow people to sell drugs that contain fentanyl, it's like, well, why not just allow them to sell drugs that contain cyanide? You know, I mean, it's, it's the, the, the likelihood of killing somebody with fentanyl is so high. It's very much, in my opinion, like shooting a gun into a crowd. The likelihood that you will hurt somebody is almost is almost certainty. And the likelihood it's a very high likelihood you'll kill somebody. And you need to provide significant deterrence to that. It doesn't seem to me that they're, they're suggesting that all drug sales, minor drug sales, are created equal. Well, fentanyl is proving them wrong every single day in this country because. It kills people, it kills everybody. There's nobody who's like long-term use of, user of fentanyl on the streets anymore. You know, I mean, no, or, the way it used to be with heroin is what I mean, The, the heroin, you would find people 30, 40 years, they, their lives were awful, but you know, they, they lived and you know, uh, now with fentanyl, that's not that's not happening. People are dying very quickly. They do not get the time on the street to, dis, the, 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 to, to, to to make a rational decision. I think they're deprived of the ability to make rational decisions, but they also don't get the time to make that decision because fentanyl will kill them. And, 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 uh, and also I would say that, that even when you revive people, it's, a, it's an unmitigated good to revive somebody's overdosing and, and bring him back to life. But the truth is overdosing de- impairs the brain. Now overdosing is about reduction of oxygen to the brain, and that can't happen over and over without um, brain impairment, and making it more difficult for you to make the kinds of decisions that will allow you to get off the street and stop using dope and that kind of thing. Anyway, it's a, it's a vicious circle. But my feeling is with decriminalization, that you know, it might have worked twenty years ago. It might have been a good idea. But with the current drugs on the street, it is an invitation to to mass death, and I think that's what we're seeing.
0: Greg, do you have any thoughts? That, leaves,
2: on the, the question, I, I, that leaves, leaves the question of what do we do? Because you know, I agree that you know, the response to the criminalization of drugs over many, many years, the incarceration rate was enormous and it was decidedly uh, disadvantageous to black people. And so liberals come up with the idea that, well, we've got to change. But decriminalization doesn't change. It just it just ignores the problem, walks away from the problem. So yes. okay, we're not gonna decriminalize. We, we agree, I think all three of us agree, but but criminalization isn't enough, and we've got to find a way to help people to, to make make them feel as though there's other options besides drugs. And that that's the question I ask you, Sam. Is yeah, I don't know, what is it that really is it is it a forlornness, is it a despair? What is it really that you've seen? that moves people, desperation, what is it that moves them into Yeah, so control? I would say
1: all of that, Greg, I mean, those are good points you're making. All of that is uh, is part of it. My feeling, maybe because I'm biased, maybe because I long ago found this this exhilarating purpose in my life to be a journalist, and, and I love it. And I've never, I've woken up excited pretty much every day of my last 35 years. And the idea of doing dope is like, nonsense. Why would I ever do that, you know? Um, finding purpose and fulfillment in life, not pleasure, different than pleasure, very different than, maybe that's, that's part of it as well. I mean, what do we do about it in the, in the deeper philosophical realm? I get to those kinds of discussions and those are not discussions that are easy, easily translated into public policy, right? I mean, you have to find something that really, you know, Uh, fulfills you. We also have to deal very deeply, in my opinion, with issues related to child molestation, child neglect, child abuse, because a lot of that is behind uh, addiction and later on in life, it seems to me, Um, uh, that we live in a time when we are bombarded, just bombarded, unlike any time previously in our lives, with uh, legally addictive substances that are marketed to us, relentlessly with, with all kinds of little nuance and, and, and come ons and tricks and all this kind of stuff. And you're talking sugar, fast food, van, video games, gambling, social media, on it. I mean, you could go on and on with that. I also think that, that we, again, getting to the trauma issue that we live in a country where we have this reservoir of trauma that was unspoken and uninvestigated un, un and un, un, unnoticed and and you lay dope on top of that, and oh my God, it's like gasoline on the fire. To use a cliche, I shouldn't use, but um, seriously, it seems to me like like they, these are some of the, when you get into those larger philosophical issues. Like you need you, you need to step back, and the problem is that there's not a public policy other than to say, and which I believe we need, absolutely do, we need to we need to put um, a very a, a much more restrictions on the ability of some of these companies to there's crap. The, right. uh, you know, we we, 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 you know, during the, the March Madness uh, basketball tournament, which I love to watch our, you know, it was like every commercial break had a gambling app yeah. ad. Right. I mean, it was like that kind of thing too. It's all, all around us. And in our lives, I'm 63. Uh, I have watched that just take over marketing and in our country, you know what I mean? Um, I think there's some other things on a more nuts and bolts policy level we could do. But when you get into these kinds of discussions, you're right. I think it's all about finding purpose, moving beyond trauma, moving, moving to a place of peace uh, with, with what has happened in your life and kind of moving beyond that in a sense. Um, That's where I kind of often go, I guess.
0: And and your book had some of that. I mean, the 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 title, "The Least of Me," that's from Matthew, and right. You know, I, that's I'm not uh, very uh, religious, but by gosh, that's that that hits it right on the head. If you know, yeah, you, you need. And that woman. was
1: really the the um that came to me as I was writing the book. I I unlike Dreamland, I didn't have a um a book. Uh, outline for the least of us. I didn't really know what the book was going to be like. I didn't know, I didn't have any idea. It was just like floating out there. For a while, it was very scary actually to write that way. You definitely want to have some direction. But um, anyway, I, uh, um, I, 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 I began to read widely cause it's a very good idea for journalists to read widely. I'm not religious either, but I'm, I, 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 I had read the Bible. I began to read the gospels again and it came upon that verse uh twenty-five, forty-three. i think it is i can't remember exactly but anyway that what you do for the least of these my brethren uh you do for me said jesus to his disciples who who had said you know he's he had told them i i i was with you when you were you were helping people in the prisons and feeding the 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 poor and uh yeah and and that kind of thing and and they said jesus we didn't see you there we didn't see you in the prison we didn't see you there and he says, Well, that's what you do for the least of these, my brethren, you do for you do for me. That it doesn't matter where you're doing it, you're still doing it for me. And when he hit me, it began making me it 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 registered. I was like, that's what we need to be doing. Instead of trying as a country to find these big magical answers that'll solve all our problems very conveniently, we need to be understanding the old, the age-old truths that Jesus understood. Um, and, and many people's sense of of course, that we all understand implicitly, which is that we're only as as, power, as strong as the most vulnerable. We're only as strong and we, we only move forward. we're better in community. We try to get away from each other. We, it may feel good because I can't stand those people and I don't want to pay taxes and I, that person doesn't vote like me and all that, but in the long run it is a disaster and we're living with the symptoms of that, which is this this drug problem. You know
0: and you know and thank God your book dealt with that i mean just about when i was ready to start doing uh some day drinking you tell the story <laughs> of a uh, bird in muncie yes tell, and tell and you know and that's exactly what you're saying at some yes. point in time that's that that i think is the theme of your book yes not the, you know not this horror story of these drugs but the precisely idea, the idea that maybe there is a point in time to for us to come together. Tell, tell the bird story, second Well,
1: you know, before I do that, though, I want to say that that's exactly right. The, the people often ask me about the fentanyl and the meth story, and that's very important. I talk about it, and if they want to, that's not a problem, but the heart and soul of the book, the heart and soul of the, of the idea, the most important idea in the book is the stories of people who are in small, small ways working to recover community, not necessarily help addicts, by the way. It was just about recovering community, repair community, help people through a tough spot. And that was Bird's story. Bird grew up in South Muncie, surrounded by two massive transmission factories. The transmission capital of America was Muncie for a long, long time. Um, he grows up there. Um, those factories begin to close and gradually do, they? they over many, many years, they begin to they close. And um, meanwhile, after the, the real estate bubble and all that, the, the town government says, you know, we can't afford to keep these community centers open. There were three community centers in the in Muncie. One of them was right across from Bird's house, and he'd worked there at one point. And they said, we got to close them. And so they did. They didn't have the budget, you know, and that kind of thing. And um, and they did. They closed the one in the South Muncie, across from Bird's house. Except Bird kept the key, and he kept keeps the key, and so every day, unbeknownst to city leaders, I think, kids would come over, hey, Bert, can you open up the, you know, can you open up, uh, we do to play ball or whatever, and he becomes, over time, he just opens that community center and keeps it running replaces the toilet paper, the light bulbs, mows the lawn because it's a very large lawn outside the outside the community center as well. M- Makes sure that you know that the the, the 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 monkey bars are good for the kids, that kind of thing. And he becomes a community center unto himself. As this town goes through the final death throes of these these factories and then of course the opioid epidemic, that kind of thing. He keeps it running until several years later the city re- rebounds and now has money to keep them going and so they reopen but he allows this t- this neighborhood very small neighborhood to keep going amid all that horrible stress economic drug etc stress and then he dies he dies and and it's like moses you know kind of moving the 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 the, the, the through but won't see the promised land in a sense and 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 um, it's it just one of those stories and when you find it as a journalist you just think oh my god this is one of the most beautiful things i've ever heard and i don't know if i am worthy or capable of telling the story the way it needs to be told so profound right. so beautiful so fascinating and exactly the kind of story i wanted to tell in the least of us which is not about always about helping addicts it's more about helping com- uh, develop uh, community again, repair community, and that will help people of all kinds, including people in addiction.
2: Right.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I have I have one one story, with, and um, I want to ask you about. I have a relative that's a police officer, brand new police officer, and he spends a lot of time doing this. I mean, he. He sometimes is the only uh, person that these people on the street have that give compassion and buys them a chocolate milk and talks to them and and so forth. And he, he when you were on the, he's actually the person that turned me on to your book that's, that said, you need to read this book. And he he said, uh, this is for you. He said, one current uh, in that's going on right now as a a police officer is that they have this problem of the war on drugs, the era of policing, which was synonymous with mass incarceration, racism, et cetera, that part of policing. And then they have the other part of the policing that's pulling them the twin threats of meth and fentanyl, which you so painstakingly uh, laid out in your book, uh, 100,000 overdoses a year. Law enforcement needs effective strategies for the grunt work. But it also desperately needs to rehabilitate its public image, especially on the drug issue. So this is to you, Sam. Do you have any insights as to how law enforcement can positively engage with communities and help to stem the tide without reverting back to the same practices that alienated millions of people, damaged the trust in police, and drove mass incarceration? Well, well,
1: that's it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. We uh, that's that's know. a that's a the balance. You know, big he's question. A guy
0: the, he's a guy on the street that deals with this.
1: Yeah, sure. And he's a, that's a huge question, and I'm uh, I'm not sure. Um, I uh, that would be a very very long discussion. Um, but let me let me say a, a, a couple of things about that. Uh, one is that um, the 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 problems with with the drug war as we know it were not because. We use law enforcement. They were because we only use law enforcement. These remember, these are drug as in pain, all emanates from the central nervous system. The most complicated entity we know, other than the universe, is our brain. You know, and so you got these things coming up. We tried to, we tried to correct, we tried to eradicate pain with one tool as well. It also comes from the central nervous system. That's called an opioid painkiller. And look at the unintended consequences of that. You don't deal with anything complex, behavioral problems particularly rooted in the brain with one solution and that's it. And we tried to do that. And I think, frankly, we tried to do that for a lot of reasons. One of them, we didn't really understand addiction very well for decades, really. It's only recently we've come to a more nuanced understanding of addiction. So my feeling is that that law enforcement can immensely help itself if it returns to doing the kind of uh, supply interdiction that that is really helpful to communities, taking down major dealers. That's one. Uh, I don't see how it's possible for a community to say that it's all right. We're going to slap a misdemeanor on a guy selling fentanyl on the streets. That is an insane, uh, completely twisted um, idea. And I think the more you arrest people selling fentanyl, the more applause you will get. I also believe that our approach frequently now needs to be a blend of harm reduction and law enforcement. I believe in one of the things as I wrote about in the book is really being, the, 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 this epidemic's calling on us to do is really rethink how to do jail. If we were to come out of this with a, with a rethought jail, with a jail as a place of recovery, places where recovery can begin as is happening right now, as this is happening right now. This is not like some pie in the sky idea. This is being experimented with. There's a lot of experimentation going on on what can happen in jail. And I think that's beautiful. It's a wonderful idea. So you blend harm it, you give. you make jail a place where people can go so they can get off the streets, away from those toxic tent encampments, away from places where they're being pimped and beaten and where they're gonna die you know, before Christmas, basically. You get them off the street where they can't go back, where the drugs have completely taken over their brains. You get them to a place where they can get detoxed, where they can see the world a little bit differently. And then instead of placing them in a drab, boring, predatory environment, which is what jail has always been in this country, how about trying to find ways of turning a pod into a place of recovery where everybody's collaborating, where he's encouraging one another, where you have 12-step meetings run by the inmates, where inmates police themselves, so any dope that gets in gets thrown out. You know, that, that kind of blend, and that's why I wrote about those three, cha- those three chapters in The Least of Us about Kenton County, Kentucky, because I think that is, a, 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 w- jail has always been an anchor around, it's been all part of the problem most of the time. And and we can tur- it's being turned into, it seems to me from my reporting, it's being turned into something that is actually totally positive or mostly positive. It is not a cure-all. It is not a panacea. There is no panacea. There is no cure-all. I want to be clear on that as I can be. But the idea that that somehow law enforcement has no role in this, that's that's crazy. That's just nonsense. That's just, yeah. It, it didn't work well in the war on drugs because it, we only used law enforcement and we didn't use anything else. I, my my contention is that we can't arrest our way out of this. We can't treat our way out of this either. Certainly not when the drugs on the street are fentanyl and, and methamphetamine and the supplies that we see them today. So to me, that that feels like where I'm headed. My thinking has been constantly changing on this stuff, constantly evolving and stuff. But it feels to me like what, what really needs to happen is we need to use that power of law enforcement to get that leverage so that we can pry those folks away from dope, turning jail into some, a place that is more akin to a modern recovery center, rehabilitation center, just a place they can't leave, which is good because when they, 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 if they wanted to leave, they would, obeying the dope, they just run right back to the tent encampment and that's where they're dying. People always say we need to meet people where they are. We know where they are, and we know where they're going. They're they're at death's door in a tent encampment. Right. You know that's where they are. So anyway, I I, I, I get a little bit you know energized about this stuff because it, it bothers me to see um, these. Clear new realities on the street, deadly drugs, mind mangling drugs, and people—it seems to me—still wedded to ideas that were were conceived before the that reality took, uh, arrived.
0: Greg, do you have any thoughts? We're sorry, we're sorry you had some audio problems early, Greg, but <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, so uh, no, I, I, I really appreciated this, uh, and and I learned so much on the. Uh, on, on the supply side, I, you know, I had no idea the changes that had occurred, you know, I think I'm, I'm living in the past under the old heroin model, you know, that these, these drugs are coming from Afghanistan or Southeast Asia or whatever, I had no idea uh, what fentanyl was all about, so it's been a real education for me.
1: Right. Thank you. Yeah, well, fentanyl changes everything, as they say on the street, right. and that's, that's the literal truth.
0: Yeah, and I think that your last comment was true, uh, Sam, where I, I think it was the San, San Francisco Chronicle today was talking about how the the homeless uh, in San Francisco spent $160 million, taking 6,000 people, putting them in 70 hotels, trying to get them off the street, out of their tents. Complete disaster. Chaos, crime, death.
1: For, uh, yeah, it, and it, I think it, I, I, I have to say... I house isn't the ha- issue. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I feel for these cities and counties because they are trying to fight an enormous battle um, with a, a, a problem, a foe, let's say, that will not stop coming, for, involving forces that are beyond their control completely. They don't, under, they don't control international relations and they don't, you know. And so it's very, very difficult to, do, to deal with and um, But I do think um, uh, c- certain expressions of decriminalization uh, in uh, a, a time of fentanyl and meth are just shooting yourself in the foot and not providing the kind of thing. Yeah, it's, not, it's true that, that in the past, some of what they say about, about the drug war is true, but they weren't selling fentanyl back then.
0: Right. Or, or, or a
1: drug that would turn you into a schizophrenic. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's, that's the, when things change, your opinions need to change. And I'm, mine is constantly, I'm constantly kind of trying to keep up with this, but I would say in the last few years, this is absolutely the way my, my thinking has changed. What, what's next? Oh man, I don't even know. I'm exhausted. I'm a, uh, i am exhausted i am I want to like take a, a break, a nap or something like that. Um, I want to I, I guess I've written, I've written I, I, I grew up in breaking news, I'm a crime reporter, you know? And, and so last eight, nine years it's been, I've written two things, two books. And my feeling is, I guess I'd like to, like to write something that doesn't take four years to finish, you know what I mean? Maybe like four months instead, a magazine story or two, uh, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I'm I'm trying to figure out if other medium media would be good for me to do video interviews, podcasts. I have to have the time to do that. I'm not sure I have it, but, but, um, for the moment, that's kind of where I am. It's, it's a, it's a complicated story. I I, I'm speaking a lot, a ton and, and that's good. Um, and, and, but, but where, what, what, if I'll the next book, I'm not, I can't tell you right now. (laughs) <laughs> well
0: your books changed my mind and there's nothing more exciting to uh have have new thoughts and uh yeah you know, new knowledge and how you, re- you. reframe things and it's been, it was just absolutely wonderful so thank you i i strongly recommend that people buy both of your books and i know you have earlier books too but um but yeah. these last two are just uh they're public service. I mean thank they, you. They, they uh, really are. And i I plan on buying copies and sending them off to off to people to see if they can get their minds changed too.
1: Some politics. Very nice of you. I appreciate the, the sentiment. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure, guys. All right. Good thank to have you on too. the show.